Welcome to QArt Foundation's Critical Distance podcast series, produced as part of Meeting Artists' Needs, a professional development program for artists of all ages and backgrounds. QArt Foundation's Meeting Artists' Needs program is generously supported by the Joan Mitchell Foundation. You're listening to Economists on Undercompensation of Labour in the Arts. Welcome. We're so glad you can be with us tonight. I'm Kevin Castle, the 2014 to 15 Public Programming Fellow at the Q Art Foundation. This is the inaugural event of the series, If It's Not Work, It Must Be Play, Discussions on the State of Work in the Arts. In this series, we will host experts, including labor economists, urban planners, activists, and financial consultants, to analyze and respond to issues facing artists and their professional practice. In theory, this discussion could go on for years, but we will only be able to cover a fraction of the concerns and challenges to art practice over the course of six events. We have to select a place to start, and the one that seemed most obvious to me was the value of our labor, which is not always adequately recognized. Are creative laborers compensated fairly? What are the broader implications of undervaluing this work? Tonight, feminist labor economists Deborah M. Figart, Ellen Mutari, and Catherine Mulder explain the undervaluation of work in the arts and humanities, what you should know about the changing labor market, and its implications for artists and society. I'd like to share some background on our speakers tonight. Dr. Deborah Figart is Professor of Education and Economics and Director of the Stockton Center for Economic and Financial Literacy. Dr. Figart received a PhD in Economics from the American University in 1986 and a BA in Economics, summa cum laude, from Wheaton College in 1981. She was a Fulbright Scholar in Western Europe from 1989 to 1990. Dr. Figard is an internationally known scholar in the field of labor and employment issues. She has written on the subjects of pay equity and wage discrimination, labor management relations, working time, emotional labor at work, minimum and living wage issues, job evaluation, and career ladders. Dr. Ellen Mutari is professor of economics at the Richard Stockton College of New Jersey, where she has taught since 1999. Dr. Mutari previously held visiting positions at the New School for Social Research, Rutgers University, and Monmouth University. She is the co-author of the forthcoming Just One More Hand, Life in the Casino Economy, as well as other books and articles on contemporary employment issues, the history of labor market policies, and feminist political economy methodology. She was the editor for the Routledge Advances in Feminist Economics book series from 2008 to 2013 and is the president-elect of the Association for Social Economics. Dr. Kathy Mulder is an associate professor of economics at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Her main fields are political economy and labor economics. Her first book was a class analysis of the Broadway musicians and she is now writing another book on transcending capitalism through cooperative practices. Her newest article is a case study analyzing the work organization of the British Broadcasting Company Symphony Orchestra and the London Symphony Orchestra. 
This article will be published in the April edition of Rethinking Marxism. Professor Mulder worked for two years with Local 802 of the American Federation of Musicians right here in New York. She's been a labor and union activist since 1979 and also has a penchant for the arts. I want to express my gratitude to the Q Art Foundation for this opportunity. This work has been challenging, rewarding, and meaningful. And also my gratitude to our panel tonight for generously sharing their insights from the perspective of labor economics. Our speakers will each share their research and then jointly speak in a Q&A period, which I will indicate in about an hour from now. Please join me in welcoming our speakers. Thank you. I'm Deb Feigart. I'm going to start us off. I want to thank our hosts and thank you for coming out. You came out this evening to engage with economists. Did you want a power nap? <laughs> if, you were, if we were a bunch of traditional economists, we three women up here, you may have a power nap, but we are not. We are feminist economists, and we have a critical gaze at our own discipline. I want to start out uh, by uh, dispelling and putting aside two myths that we recognize. The first myth is the myth of the solo artist perhaps living upstairs in a little garret, maybe discovered late in life, absolutely false. Being an artist is highly social. It involves working within a large community of varied professionals, patrons and sponsors and other artists and managers and critics and customers. The other thing we need to throw aside from the literature is the myth of the happy artist the happy artist with exceptionally high job satisfaction, very short work weeks, lots of leisure time to mingle in the community, totally false, not shown in the research at all. In one of the first studies of its kind that I read on the job satisfaction of artists, and this was in the Journal of Cultural Economics, uh, by Lasse Steiner and Lucian Schneider of Switzerland, uh, they talk about the enormous hard work of artists, and they hear from artists. Hard to make it your primary job, your number one way to bring in income. But artists do share, the authors found, that there are non-pecuniary rewards of being part of the artistic community. In fact, you have a lot in common with us mm -hmm. as college and university professors. Uh, our neighbors on our streets, in our neighborhoods, business people we interact with, taxpayers, and sometimes our close friends don't know or do not understand what we do. They assume that our FaceTime in the classroom or our performance time equals our work time. Not true. What is true in the literature, and this is not a myth, is that the creative class of individuals in this country, what some people call bohemians, uh, have helped really generate and regenerate economic development or redevelopment of center cities in this country and across the globe, and that's a good thing. And in the literature, just so you know uh, what we're talking about, the definition of artists varies.
the most common definition is the visual arts, the fine arts, and the crafts, performance arts in front of the audience and behind the curtain or camera, such as directors and designers, musicians. Would you include authors? Some people do. Uh, most economic studies do not. So uh, before I get more specific about uh, wages in the arts and salaries in the arts and what determines them, I need to back up just for a second and talk about how economists approach the study of wages and what determines wages and salaries in the economy. And economic studies are, are highly statistical. They're called econometric research and they're equations thrown into a computer based upon data. And on the left-hand side of the equation is what you are trying to explain, and that is what people earn, their wages and salaries. And on the right-hand side of the equation is everything economists can possibly measure to try and legitimately explain people's pay. They throw everything in, including the kitchen sink. So on that side of the equation are things like your education, your experience, any other skill you have, whether you work full-time or part-time, what region of the country you live in, Do, are you a city resident or a rural resident, what is your marital status, do you have children, and how many children do you have? What is the size of the firm or the organization in which you work? Are you a union member? Or if not, are you covered by a collective bargaining agreement? Just on and on and on, whatever economists can possibly measure to try and legitimately explain what determines wages. And you know what the end result is? When they do this data analysis, they can only explain one-third to one-half of what determines wages. So even if you quibble with what I've listed, marital status, come on. You ought not to use that. Even if you quibble with that, economists can only explain one-third to one-half. They're trying to improve their models and throw everything else in there, but economists cannot see the forest for the trees. They're missing three key things. And here's how, how I remember the three key things when I, when I talk about this in class. C, D, E, doe a deer. I think I have my pitch right. C, D, E, C. Culture and norms. Who is appropriate for what job? And what is that job worth? What we find as feminist economists when we study this, because we can play around with data too, we find that as the percent female in a job goes up and or the percent people of color in a job goes up, average pay falls. I'll give you a specific example take jobs in this country that involve taking care of people. They are paid less than, here's another specific one, taking care of a golf course. Taking care of people is devalued. I want to give you an example of a typical economist um, and how uh, he values things 
in the economy. His name is David Throsby. He wrote a book called Economics and Culture. This is from the preface of his book. So uh, it's, it's several lines, bear with me. I, but I think that you'll dislike it. <laughs> About 10 years ago, I gave a lecture under the title Art and the Economy at a Symposium on Cultural Policy. In introducing the topic for a generalist audience, I speculated on what the twin subjects of the lecture might look like if they took on human form. Being an economist myself, I was licensed to poke fun, some gentle fun at my own profession. So I suggested that the economy as a real person would certainly be male, <laughs> somewhat overweight, prone to hypochondria, garrulous, and inclined to neglect his personal freshness. In, sort, in short, not the sort of individual you would relish sitting next to on a long aeroplane flight. In the same vein, I went on, art would just as certainly be female, smart, unpredictable, and somewhat intriguing. <laughs> the metaphor seemed to strike a chord with the listeners. Perhaps it is that everyone enjoys a joke at economist expense, or perhaps it is more that the idea of art as mystery, a riddle whose secrets are not easily unlocked, has a wider appeal than we might think. <laughs> OMG, this is such an example of gendering of art and economics, society associating masculinity or femininity with occupations and disciplines. And it's one of the reasons why occupations with uh, women and people of color tend to pay less. So that was middle C. D, discrimination. The D word, which is like the F word to most traditional economists, mm -hmm. discrimination. Even in female-dominated or male-dominated and integrated jobs, there is still intra-occupational segregation where women doctors do different things than male doctors, different specialties, in management, in the arts, in the sciences, all over the place. Mm -hmm. And the employer behavior of paying women less for example, in their childbearing years and assigning them to different jobs or tasks because of faulty ideas that women are not committed to their work just carries over into wage and salary setting. Discrimination. E, emotional labor. Emotional labor emphasizes the relational rather than the task-based aspect of work. Dealing with people, dealing with their feelings or their emotions, even the authentic expression of emotion is work, such as playing an instrument as opposed to playing a role on Broadway. This work is found a lot in the service sector, the growing sector of our society. It's found in education, it's found in the arts, it's found in social services, in a lot of healthcare jobs, in sales, in customer relations and service. Scholar Alan Hudson from Oxford University speaks of the jobs this way. He says, quote, the labor market is dominated by routine service work in which attitude and acceptability rule. The mundane tasks have the sugar coating of cool. To deliver parcels is to be a runner 
in the media industry. <laughs> so what about artists and wages? There's a book uh, by Hans Abing called Why Are Artists Poor? Uh, Ar Hans Ar Arbing, he's, a, he's an economist. Uh, he hypothesizes that artistic type individuals believe that they are unfit for normal jobs. <laughs> so if they cannot find a job in the creative sector, they end up in poorly paying non-art jobs. So Hans Arbing says that as long as artists believe this is true, whether or not it's true, it goes a long way toward explaining the acceptance of low incomes. What? Based upon my reading and work for decades, uh, there is so much more about gender and, and race-based wage gaps and discrimination, remember CDE, that goes into it. I would put so much less emphasis on this so-called choice or self-selection explanation. There's so much more to it than that, like power. Kathy's done a lot of work about power and the imbalance of power between artists and business people that support the arts. There's a fascinating, fascinating relatively new study uh, I want to bring to your attention about, it's in the study, Bohemians, who graduated from college in the UK. It's titled, Life is Short, Art is Long, the Persistent Wage Gap Between Bohemian and Non-Bohemian Graduates. They define Bohemian as folks in the arts, design, entertainment, sports, and media. Yeah, the definition is too broad, but it's a real novel study of the labor market, one of the first I've ever seen. So these authors control for the usual things uh, that I was talking about with our fancy schmancy regression equations and econometrics earlier, but they still find wage gaps and non-wage gaps. What they find is many artists do not support themselves solely through the arts. There's a lot of part-time jobs in other sectors. That average salaries are low, and female and ethnic minorities earn less than male and majority bohemian counterparts. The salary gaps are not just a short-term phenomenon. They, they continue on in the career. The career takes a longer time to be successful before you can establish a name for yourself in the arts and get a monetary reward from that. Job security is low in these jobs. In creative jobs, there is an overlap of what is work and what is quote unquote leisure, which can lead to very long work days and very long work weeks. They found that unemployment is higher than average in the arts, that there's a lot of underemployment where you're not doing what you are most skilled to do. Ellen's gonna talk about the rise of part-time temporary freelancer self-employment and contingent labor. Uh, Kathy's, gonna, Kathy's gonna talk about her work on the musicians. Uh, there are not many studies and, and Kathy has done some very good ones. So for me, why are artists poorer? Uh, because of discrimination, CDE, culture, discrimination, emotional labor, uh, also because of underfunding of the arts, especially by the public sector since the Reagan administration. And there's a whole skewed distribution of income in the arts. There's the top 1% and then there's everybody else. So we can talk more with Q&A, but if I had any recommendations for you,
I would say that besides an enormous amount of talent and creativity and great organization skills and time management skills and commitment to hard work, uh, some things that are essential to have as building blocks is an understanding of basic contracts. And you wouldn't think of that. You think, oh, that's so legalistic. But I'm um, chief negotiator of my local union. I'm in the AFT Local 2275, the Stockton Federation of Teachers. And I had to learn a lot about how to read contracts and agreements and how to write them, and also how to negotiate for what you want and what you deserve. So you need those kinds of legal and negotiation skills. You need a reading and understanding and building of basic budgeting and basic financial planning. I'm sorry, but you do. Um, and there's a great book on the reading list that we've recommended. And you need to know how to deal with people, lots of people, and manage people. So the skills that you need are varied besides the talent. I'll turn it over to Ellen. Hi. Um, well, you're getting a feeling for why economics is called the dismal science. Um, both. Um, so, Deb, uh, my colleague Deb, uh, focused on the economic devaluation of work in the arts and how that affects the livelihoods of artists. Um, and, but of course, as the title of this series implies, work is about more than a paycheck. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the concept of job quality and some of the literature, different, very different conceptualizations of job quality and what makes a good job. How that is, how economists think of that, have thought about that in terms of the arts, and I'm going to poke fun at economists again, uh, some economists again. <laughs> it's not hard. <laughs> and then um, talk a little bit about the uh, changing labor markets and the, in a sense, how goods, what happened, good jobs are becoming bad jobs in America today. And then I will turn over to Kathy to be a little more upbeat, hopefully somewhat, and talk a little bit about how you make jobs good jobs. Job quality, by the way, and what makes a good job, what makes a bad job is something that Deb and I have been working on collaboratively for a number of years now. Um, in particular, and it's not completely relevant to what you're doing, we've been studying casino workers in Atlantic City, and Atlantic City's been in the news a lot lately, so our timing is kind of interesting. Uh, we have a book coming out looking at uh, the jobs that people, some people still have, um, despite the smaller number of casinos in Atlantic City. Um, and talking to people in different kinds of jobs, particularly jobs interacting with people, with customers, um, about what they feel makes their job good, a good job or a bad job. So unlike a lot of economists, we talk to people. Um, what's interesting about casino employees is that they produce an intangible experience that's intended as entertainment. Um, and that's a it's, an, it's a very interesting kind of work, um, but of course, because the entertainment that they provide, it's not quite like um, buying a ticket to a Broadway show. You lose money in the process um, that you didn't necessarily intend to lose, so that, that complicates it a bit. Um, in uh, his book, and this is on our reading list, The Thought of Work, and I'm going to actually talk about somebody whose work I like. Um, uh, John Budd, who is an industrial relations specialist, defines work as a purposeful human activity involving physical or mental exertion that is not undertaken solely for pleasure and that has economic or symbolic value. 
Um, so I think that idea of work as a purposeful human activity and that it is not something we do only, he, he simply says that it's not only done for intrinsic value, which doesn't mean that it couldn't have intrinsic value, right? Um, so what Bud does in this book is he traces 10 different cultural conceptions of work, from the biblical notion of work as a curse, um, through work as identity, when we meet someone, we ask them, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And it's one of the first things we want to find out and know about somebody. Um, I want to focus on two of his 10, not those two. The first is work as personal fulfillment. And um, that obviously seemed important. Uh, Gallup, the polling organization, uh, I have the website on the list. They've done extensive research in the last few years on individual well-being. What, what gives people a sense of well-being about their lives? And they've kind of honed it down to five important areas. And the first one originally was called career well-being. They've re-updated it since um, they published a book on this to call it purpose, um, to recognize that not all the work, not all of the thing, purposeful human activities that we do, the work that we do, um, is paid work, that it can also include unpaid work, such as everything from raising children to volunteer work, avocations, so things that we don't necessarily get paid for. But having a sense of purpose is very important in people's well-being. The second area is social, having good relationships um, with other people and a sense of love in your life. The third is financial security, which does enhance people's well-being. Um, the fourth is a sense of community, belonging to a community, feeling good about the community that you live, where you live and the, and the community you belong to. And then physical health um, and having energy. So he, those are the five areas that they, they identify. So in this, um, in this conceptualization, purposeful human activity or work is something that can contribute to our sense of personal fulfillment or well-being are flourishing as human beings. That is actually a very strange notion to most economists. And now I'll go back to the economics bashing. Um, in contrast, mainstream economists tend to start from the assumption that work is something that we simply endure in order to earn a paycheck. They start from um, one of the 10 concepts that Bud focuses on the idea that work is what they call a disutility. Dis meaning not. Utility comes from um, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, this, uh, the philosophical school of utilitarianism, which argued that human beings seek to seek pleasure and avoid pain, and a good society is one that brings the greatest amount of pleasure to the greatest number of people. Anyway, and uh, economics has adopted utilitarianism as part of um, a package of concepts that it's built on, modern economics. The problem with this notion is it focuses specifically on work as a commodity, something that you sell um, for simply to earn money and that one's, life's, one's real life purpose occurs outside of work. It's a notion that fits in with a very consumerist notion of our culture because the true purpose of our lives is to make money to buy things. Um, and this is a model of work as a starting point that makes it very hard to understand work that provides intrinsic rewards, um, any kind of enjoyment, meaning, connection, or sense of flourishing. Uh, so not surprisingly, in the economics literature, trying to understand 
uh, the time allocated to work by artists and how artists make decision about allocating time to work between work and other activities kind of is hard for them because it doesn't quite fit into this model. Um, and the same economist that Deb quoted, David Throsby, basically started by modeling artists' preferences about work. He, this guy has a lot. He's really the pivotal fi starting figure in economists thinking about the arts, which is kind of scary. He assumes that artists are overwhelmingly motivated to create art, only care about a minimum compensation bundle, so they don't really, uh, minimal consumption bundle, thank you, she's reading over my shoulder, a minimal consumption bundle, so artists don't care about you know, any of the material things of life, and do not care at all about having leisure time. And he builds an art, a model where artists, um, as one summary of his work suggests, are relatively oblivious to financial concerns. Well, you can see, I mean, if, if what he's picking up on is a dominant cultural narrative about artists, mm -hmm. it really, I think, contributes to our understanding about why work in the arts is underpaid. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, artists don't care about buying things, and artists don't care about leisure, and artists don't care about their living standards. They just care about making their work, and as we were talking about at the beginning, having the exposure, having people see it. That, that's all they care about. And so it's very easy to exploit people and not think you're exploiting them if that's your dominant cultural conception of who artists are and what they do. Um, and basically some later studies um, also note that Throsby has, um, is relying on a stereotype. There are economists who do critique him. They've, and they focus, most of the studies do focus on multiple, as Deb said, multiple job holding by artists. Um, the idea that um, artists have to trade off their desires for consumption, leisure, and artistic work. So they complicate it a little more. But it's sort of complicating that original narrative, which was this idea that artists mostly just care about doing their art and don't care about these other things that normal human beings care about. Um, so in Deb's and my research standpoint, um, in doing work on job quality, we are much more in line with the Gallup view that work has multiple dimensions and it's an important part of how we contribute to our own well-being um, while acknowledging the reality that most people do need to provide for themselves and their families via paid work, including artists. Our definition in our work of what a good job is is that it's one that helps you create a life and reinforces a positive sense of identity. And uh, that came out of our interviews with people in a variety of different kinds of work. Uh, so that, what does that mean? That means that you need pay and benefits because you need to materially provision for yourself and your family. That should matter in a good job, but it's not simply that. Economists often start, stop there. Um, you need to minimize conditions that undermine your physical or mental health or shorten your life. That's particularly important in the casinos because of the existence of smoke. Um, on the casino floor and, and so forth, um, as well as some other issues. That conditions, policies, and practices that fo foster a balance between paid work and other aspects of one's life, including personal relationships, community, and the things we do as our avocation are important. And it's important for work to provide a positive sense of identity, including contributing to one's sense of dignity. Workers should be treated with dignity. Um, and giving us a sense of purpose and meaning. Um, 
But unfortunately, the work we, when we started out with our work on casinos, we thought we were going to basically evaluate whether these were good jobs or bad jobs. And what we found was that we had a, that was too static a way of thinking about good jobs and bad jobs. That in fact, what was happening in Atlantic City's casinos, but happening so many other places as well, is good jobs are becoming bad jobs. And that's the kind of the trend about the labor market that I want to kind of share with you. Because if you're experiencing this personally, you need to know that it's not just you. Um, so our, the subtitle of our book is called Life in the Casino Economy. And we use casino economy as a metaphor for a contemporary economy in which our lives are becoming much more risky, much more fraught with risk. So in the last few years, we've seen buying a home, safe investment, good, right? Good thing to do with your money. No, the housing bubble bursting showed us that a lot of people who thought they were doing the smart thing got left with a lot of debt um, and it, that it turned out to be risky. These days, there's a lot of tension to student loan debt. Seemed like going to college was a smart thing to do, but people are walking out of college with a lot of debt and not necessarily getting the kinds of jobs that can sustain themselves to pay off the debt. So something that seemed to be a smart thing to do turns out to be a gamble. Um, even accepting a job is much more an insecure choice than it used to be because there's much more turnover in employers. Um, so as we found that workers in industries as varied as auto workers and casino workers have found jobs that were once a ticket to a middle class lifestyle are now much more likely to be part time, contingent jobs, short term, seasonal, contract layer uh, jobs without benefits or security. Coming out of the Great Recession of the last few years, a lot of people are now working for the same business that they used to work for, but instead of having a 40-hour-a-week full-time job with benefits, they're now called outside consultants or contractors, and I have a number of friends in that position. You may know people like that as well. Um, and so this transformation, uh, an economist named uh, Guy Standing refers to as precariatization the world becoming more precarious, the labor market precarious, the world becoming more precarious. And um, standing suggests a new, that we're evolving towards a new class structure in the United States and the global economy. Actually, he's British. That there's an elite group of global citizens at the top, what Occupy Wall Street would refer to as the 1%. Um, just below them are what he, he has these interesting terms, salariate, referring to salaried workers, um, who are full-time employees in salaried jobs with pensions, benefits, paid holidays, et cetera. But um, side by side, some people who used to be salaried workers are now what he calls proficients, which are professional and technical workers who have skills to market, but now work short-time contracts or as consultants. And that, and basically sees one of the shifts that's happening is from the salariate to the proficients, that people are moving in that direction. It, there is, he says, still an old working class, primarily manual labor, but also including uh, service workers, people who are waged workers, hourly workers, um, perhaps unionized, although not as often as used to be. Um, but they're disappearing too, and he argues they're being replaced with what he calls the precariat, and that's the title of his book people who are seen as just flexible inputs into the production process. 
So they have unstable jobs, few benefits, and office package income from multiple jobs. And that's an experience that I think probably some people in this room can relate to. Um, and standing basically views that these more unstable forms of work are growing as a sector of the economy, and that's part of this evolving towards a riskier, more casino economy as we've been talking about. Um, so that's the depressing note on which I'm turning this over to Kathy. Um, and uh, hopefully, though, I think one of the, I saw that next week's session, which I hope some of you will come back with, I think really talks with some strategies about how to deal with these trends in the labor market and how, how best to react to that. So, yeah. Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for in the invitation in the Q Foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, for inviting me to speak, for all three of us, I guess. Um, okay, I'm going to start by telling you two stories about two different groups of musicians, the Broadway musicians and the London Symphony Orchestra, who I became quite knowledgeable about. There's, a, there's an interesting... Um, anybody a musician here? Oh, good. Okay. So have you ever been asked to play, you know, just for no money and you know, just because, you know, um, there's an old joke out there that says, you know, when you're, you know, when you ask a plumber to come out on a Saturday night for five hours, you know, you don't expect him to put the uh, bathtub in for free or whatever it is or clean out your whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, my father's a plumber, so I can s say that. Um, but the musicians play. They don't work, right? Okay. <laughs> so um, the, the, the idea of playing, you know, or is a whole, you know, or, you know, acting or playing, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, yeah. So um, in 2009, I published this book entitled uh, Unions and Class Transformation, and I did the case of the Broadway musicians. It was based on my dissertation at the University of Massachusetts. Um, so I'm not going to go into too many details about the book, but the main emphasis was on how unions can facilitate musicians um, to change their working atmosphere mm -hmm. um, from bosses who act capriciously and arbitrarily. So for um, many years, work uh, unions provi uh, provided workers with protection from this encroachment of capitalists. Uh, they, they did a good job of resisting this encroachment, but um, they never tried to change the system that was in there. And so uh, now we know that unions are getting beat up badly. Um, given the uh, implementation of right to work laws, Whereas, which really means your right to freeload, um, and the opposition to the Employee Free Choice Act. So you could just sign a card and become a union member. Mm -hmm. So um, both the Broadway musicians and the LSO musicians, uh, they both produce this commodity called music. It is a commodity, okay? Um, and uh, they do so live, they do so taped, whatever. Um, uh, but they don't just produce the commodity for themselves to reproduce themselves to come back. They produce a little bit extra, or a lot extra, you know, money-wise. And that, that money on Broadway doesn't go to the musicians. They don't get the fruits of their labor. They get a wage, yes. 
but anything over that wage goes to the producers. We call that surplus, okay? So my big question is, who gets this surplus? On Broadway, it's not the musicians. In fact, they have no say in what happens to the fruits of their labor, okay? Um, it's like any other capitalist environment, and so therefore, because they don't get a say of the fruits of their labor, we say that they are exploited. Um, so the musicians' union doesn't even seek out to change this. In fact, they, I, I, knew, I know this personally because I sat there for two years listening to them saying how these are management rights, they get to say what goes on. We don't even want to change that. Uh, the musicians don't know anything about business or whatever. Let the management do all that. Um, so they, even within the musicians' union, they lack this uh, sense of class consciousness, and they don't even try to eradicate their own exploitation. Um, so the best the union does is to resist, and they do this through collective bargaining that um, Dev addressed um, and the grievance procedure. So that was kind of my job because they they hired me to do it professionally because I can't I'm tone deaf. So I'm not a musician. Um, I couldn't even do that CDE thing. Yeah, no. Um, but uh, so I'm tone deaf. So they hire me to be a professional collective bargaining and grievance person. Um, so the Broadway musicians, um, it's interesting that they have a hundred percent unionization rate. In fact, most of Broadway is union. It has thirteen. 13 unions on Broadway. Um, all the houses are, have, have um, contracts. I don't think City Center has one. Oh. It's not Broadway. <laughs> that said, you would think they have some real power, right? 100% unionization rate means they have power. But the musicians are hired on a per show basis. They have the run of the show, but, you know, I mean, show, most shows don't last very long. Mm -hmm. There's just so many Phantom of the Operas out there, okay? So um, at most, there's about 300 or so chairs at any time on Broadway, at most. I mean, that's a lot. That's every uh, house open, theater open, right. and every chair taken or whatever. Um, but thousands of these people, thousands more would like them. It's about 2,500 to 3,000 more would like these chairs, so there's a Wow. A big competition for these. There's no auditions on Broadway. Um, they are, ha are hired by contractors. Um, these are men, white men. Um, and uh, there's two dominant ones on Broadway now, Michael Keller and um, Miller, John Miller. Um, there's a couple others that come in now and again. So if you piss off one of these contractors, you're never going to work on Broadway again. So they don't have the power of a 100% unionization rate, right? Mm. Um, they, they, um, they rarely complain or file a grievance, no matter how egregious a violation is. And I've seen some pretty egregious violations. Um, so I, they do so anonymously, and it was like my job to go in there and find this problem. Yeah, okay. So um, the, the, it is true that uh, the Broadway musicians are paid pretty well when they get there. They're all 
have master's degrees from you know, Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music or NYU and PhDs in composing and whatnot. Pretty, um, most of them do. Um, they, um, but they, um, changing the conditions under which they work is not a high priority for them. They just accept this exploitation as normal. So um, this is uh, quite a few years ago during collective bargaining, it was before my time there, um, a long time ago, uh, between the Musicians Union and now what's known as the Broadway League. It used to be known as the League of American Theaters and Producers. Um, the issue of substituting themselves out. Musicians act actually pick out their substitutes and say, come and take my place for the night because they have another job or position that's more lucrative or even if it's just for a family function. Um, they could be at a symphony, a wedding, they could be teaching, whatever, whatever the case may be. I know the one woman that was in the pit at uh, Lion King, she was the percussionist. She's also the percussionist on Saturday Night Live, so every Saturday night hmm. she you know, subbed herself out and did not get paid, the sub got the pay, right. you know, her own. So, um, so it's an extremely important um, for these musicians to be able to absent, absent themselves. Um, now, uh, so in the Broadway, um, in the Broadway contract, they can absent, absent themselves about 50% of the time. Hmm. And it's really funny how this happened. It was at a collective bargaining session, like I said, before my time, and I, you might have heard his name, Gerald, Gerald Schoenfeld. Mm -hmm. There's actually a theater named sure. after him. He was the president of the Schubert organization. Just, he just yelled out at one point, I think he was getting really old at the time, but he just <laughs> yelled out, hey, we're not paying them anyway, let them have off 50% of the time. Well. The whole, when you see these bargainings, there's 40 people on one side, yes. 40 people yes. on the other. Um, the other people just went, huh? You know, on his side. And the musicians said, yeah, we'll take that, <laughs> you know. Um, so at the dismay of many conductors, producers, um, and the contractors, because uh, the musicians can pick up to five uh, substitutes. Now, the sub. That's how people get jobs on Broadway, though. Mm -hmm. They get it by being getting known by being a substitute musician, uh -huh. and they can substitute in many different. Um, you know, I could be in the pit in Phantom tonight, and Les Mis tomorrow night, and and these are they don't even rehearse. You know, they know it. You know, they're good. Um, so. Um, the contractors and conductors are always complaining about it, but they, this is not something that they're gonna let go. Um, so, this practice is not new and not weird. In fact, it's been happening for over, for hundreds of years. Which brings me to the London Symphony Orchestra, or the LSO. The LSO was born in 1904 precisely because they were taking away their right to have substitutes. They're called deputies in, in, um, in England, okay? 
So, um, 19, so they've been in existence now since 1904. It's had some bumps in the road, like two world wars, a Great Depression, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, and they even missed out on sinking with the Titanic, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, so the LSO evolved out of the Queen's Hall Orchestra, which was known for being the proms orchestra, mm. okay? Um, uh, and uh, they had an edict that came down and said no substitutes, no deputies. So these four musicians um, uh, came back and said, screw you, uh, and formed their own orchestra, a self-governed orchestra, an, an economic democracy orchestra, and they, okay? and and the LSO was born, and it's still self-governed to this day. I spent a really good month in London not too long ago. So each member holds 10 shares. So this is a, a way that you can organize yourselves, right? Um, so each member holds 10 shares of the LSO that cost a mere one pound each. Hmm. So, you know, you buy these 10 pounds of, you know. So um, the shares cannot be sold to anybody and they must be returned when the musician resigns. The maximum number of shares is 1,000, so limit the number of members to 100. They elect their own committees, their own board of directors, they decide on their own salaries, they make touring decisions, and in the beginning, in the, beginning the board met a lot and made every little decision, no matter how mundane. Um, in, their articles of association, they had monthly meetings and the boards that, that required the board to meet. Um, they'd make uh, decisions like finding a rogue mus musician, making, you know, all these minutia things. So, but today the board meets about every three weeks and the full orchestra committee meets quarterly. Um, the minutes make it perfectly clear I've read thousands of minutes, <laughs> um, that they are self-governed and they are quite democratic. I mean, in primary difference now, though, is that the board does appoint a non-playing business manager, and, but she's at the behest of the, of the musicians, and a non-playing secretary financial director, who both of those run the daily operations and they now have 60 staff people, hmm. okay? Uh, the chairman works closely with the business manager and the secretary, and um, uh, but as I said, they're at the behest of the musicians. They could, you know. So some theoretical perspectives, even some Marxists and lefties, would have a really hard time with those 60 people working mm -hmm. for them. Okay, um, but. Um, you know, uh, the way I look at things is the musicians have control over the committees and appointments, um, and so um, they're the ones who produce this surplus, and they're the ones that decide what to do with it, whether it's hiring professionals or whatever. They even hire their own conductors hmm. and fire their own conductors. <laughs> wow. um, indeed, um, just a little tidbit here. Everybody's heard of Edward Elger, you know, mm -hmm. pomp oh, yes. and yes. yeah, yes. guy, right? Yes. They fired him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they hired him back, though. Okay, because <laughs> um, the um, ticket sales were going down. 
Um, so, um, so if we look at this through a surplus perspective, they do it themselves. Okay, so who is producing the surplus? Who gets it? Who distributes it? That's the answer. If, if you answer the musicians or the people that are producing it, um, it's not a capitalist enterprise like the Broadway musicians were. It's something else. It's self-governed, a democratic one. One would even, some of us would even call it a communist enterprise, which is defined as the self-appropriation of the surplus, okay? Um, so the LSO musicians both, uh, well, I don't know if I just said that. Okay, um, this is different than the Broadway musicians who take the surplus away. As a result, they decide who gets it. And they make lots of payments out of it to secure their own conditions of existence to remain viable. Um, so what are some of the benefits of this kind of structure? Besides the obvious, feeling like you have control or voice mm. is known. Hirschman talked about voice in your working conditions. The musicians um, uh, also enjoy a variety of benefits that are not typically given in a top-down capitalist environment. They have job security, right? There are cl clear rules and regulations that they decided themselves, bylaws and whatnot, um, that all musicians have agreed and voted upon regarding their responsibilities and, their, and um, there are repercussions if they're not met. Hiring and firing decisions are neither arbitrary nor capricious. They are dif there are differences of opinions, of course, but for over 100 years now, according to the archivists there, they, uh, the musicians have somehow sorted it out, mm -hmm. sorted them out, excuse me. Uh, the current players vote, on, vote in new members. They usually come from the ranks of the previously mentioned deputies, so there too. Um, having played with the orchestra as a deputy is a benefit to both the potential new member and the orchestra as well, because it's like this long-term audition. Uh, the deputy often has uh, one or two auditions, though, so the current musicians can get a real sense of how, the, how well the, they'll perform, and it's also collegial. Thirdly, the musicians have voted themselves a health care benefit that the capitalist employers would typically not provide in the UK. Um, as you all probably know, the UK has this national health program mm -hmm. that's available to all its citizens, unlike ours. Okay. I understand when I was in London that the national health um, program has much improved and the waiting for doctors isn't what it once was. And, but the musicians um, decided to supplement this program with extra private insurance because of you know the details with their hands or whatever it is, um, lungs. Um, so um, not all have taken advantage of this. Um, they sometimes can get into doctors sooner and things like that. But not some people, uh, for ideological reasons, have stayed away from that. Um, and the, the musicians themselves have seen a problem with this deputy program. So they came up with their own novel and reasonable, am I, um, um, reasonable solution to it. And what, is it, what they call it is the dual, um, the dual uh, principle program. 
it's essentially a job sharing program. Mm -hmm. So they'll have two, you, uh, do you all know that each section has a principal violinist or principal whatever? So each section now has two, either, you know, and the, you know, the concert masters or the violinists usually. And um, so they each have two and they make a decision up front, you know, which ones I'm going to play and which ones I'm not going to be, be at. Um, so, um, and the non-principal orchestra players, uh, they let them know, they let them know well in advance, and they have a list of people that can take their place. Um, and it's it seems to be working for them. Um, so, uh, they the one that, uh, just a little bit more on the LSO that is not like Broadway. Um, or any other kind of like capitalist enterprise, they're really into the future. Capitalists tend to think about this quarter's profits. You know, we gotta make profits this quarter. If we don't make profits this quarter. And they don't think about future musicians or uh, workers, okay, or the audiences, mm -hmm. which is not true with the LSO. The LSO has developed two programs, the LSO Discovery and LSO St. Luke's. Discovery is a concerted effort and commitment by the LSO to music education. Um, it's an award-winning program that reaches over 60,000 people annually. So uh, it uh, provides family concerts and makes substantial investments into young musicians locally, nationally, and internationally. It's housed in a, in a restored church down the block from the main thing. You know, children, adults take pl classes there um, at St. Luke, at the St. Luke's church. Um, the musicians view these as long-term investments. Um, and in times of austerity and elimination of music and arts in both pu public and private schools, they do that in the UK too, um, they are trying to, you know, uh, secure their public and, um, their audiences for the future, or even um, uh, their audience, or, or players, or workers, I should say. Okay, so they also have um, partnered with the Guild, Guild Hall School, which uh, developed a model program uniting the arts with higher education. And according to their material, it's the first major program a center for an orchestra that provides an unparalleled opportunity for training and development of young orchestral players while keeping a focus on the evolution of the professional orchestra of the future. And so they're, they're teaching and training their own future members. They also have their own record label now. Okay, and so, um, so they're getting out there, they sell well, CDs and this little old uh, MP3 players and you know whatever um, you know you you they have a classic rock album and, and I think some of you might have heard of the the, um, the movie Star Wars yeah they they that's the LSO okay so the um, just because I'm a union person I wanted to know more about the UK union you know and the musicians union there. Um, the UK, it's very different there, the uh, way unions work, um, but they, um, they negotiate, they have a, two groups, the musicians uh, group, and then the, the Association of British Orchestras, um, 
and they negotiate minimum wages, um, a benchmark for payments for musicians. So their salaries are over those, the LSO salaries. Um, there's no requirement for them to be m members of the Musicians' Union. However, most are. They have their own, uh, you know, like I just, so um, people say that unions have uh, outlived their use usefulness, but perhaps if we think about facilitating this, I mean, even space, we all know about space in New York, right? Like the, um, at local 802s on 48th Street between 8th and 9th. And they have a huge hall like this that fits the whole symphony or New York Symphony Orchestra in it. So they could use that to, for whatever, teaching. I don't, you know, so I don't believe these four men from, um, in 1904 were trying to start a revolution. They simply wanted fair working conditions. Um, but, um, you know, they've gotten through the large deficits and now they're in the black, which is, kind of odd for orchestras. Um, and uh, funding is hard, uh, but th they're doing it, you know. So, um, but the idea that there has to be some visionary CEO who has made his own or her own investment, which typically is not their money anyway, um, is the most efficient or preferred enterprise structure is just plain old bunk. <laughs> now, the little thing about the Titanic. <laughs> this is just to end this with the Titanic. Um, they were, sh they were, um, they still have the, the, the um, documents that they were booked for the maiden voyage of the, well, the only voyage of the Titanic. <laughs> but they decided to change their schedule and come over to these states a couple of weeks earlier on the Baltic and they're very happy they did because that would have been the end of 1913, I think it was, or 12. Uh, uh, 12. It's one, 12, right. April. Yeah. And, um, yep, tw it is 12. 13 is Patterson Silk Strike. Yeah, okay. Um, so, um, you know, so they would have went down with that ship and that would have been the end of them. So, and no but, book for you. And no book for me. Um, <laughs> but I have to say that um, I have a new article coming out like she said, in Rethinking Marxism, coming out in April, it will be published. Um, it's, there are um, five orchestras in London. Uh, four of them are self-governed, and the one that isn't is state-owned, the BBC. So thank you very much for having us. Yes, thank you. Let's open it up. Outside of London, are there other self-governing music groups in Britain? I don't know. I think there are. And I think Liverpool might be one of them. Um, and some other, there's so many orchestras in England. Um, but I, I believe there are. But as long as they're not BBC. Yeah. And is there any animosity between the musician, musicians' unions and this other model of self-governing orchestra? They're all in the union. Yeah, every one of them are in the union. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not, the union is not like, the unions in France and the unions in, uh, in the UK are very different models than what we're used to here. So, like, 
the unionization rate for in France, for example, something like I don't know five percent. But you know, you know, when they go on strike, everything stops. Musicians at the LSO, they 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 don't need the union as much as the people at the BBC do, right? Because they're doing it all themselves. So they're at management and workers at the same time. And, and do you know of any self-governing music groups in the States? I'm hearing there's one, and I can't recall where it is right now. I know that there's like a small orchestra that doesn't have a conductor. Right. It's in New York. And right. Of it is not coming to mind. I know that one, too. I can't think of it either. But I don't but, know if beyond the lack of conductor, whether it's a... Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting to note that, um, well, I'm a Marxist, in case you haven't figured that out. Um, so it's interesting to note that Marx, in volume three of Capital, um, considers a conductor of an orchestra as part of, a necessary part of the productive uh, members. So I did leave that out in here, but in my other work it says that by them, by them not being included in the membership of the orchestra, that's a little caveat that makes them not exploitative, you know? So, because um, the orchestra, in fact, he uses the example of a conductor in an orchestra in volume three. So, yeah, I can, I can get you that exact citation if you want it. <laughs> You mentioned that we may be moving towards new class structure, mm -hmm. um, and yet the idea of the union comes up again as a way of creating more leverage in the workplace. Um, but I'm, I'm also going back to the idea of um, disposable, the disposable workforce. Yeah. There, are, there are too many people for too few jobs, and I think that the, um, the idea of the, the freelance consultant um, independent worker is one that's very timely across mm -hmm. the board now, um, and, and it's one that artists know well. So I'm wondering, um, as this is happening, is the union still um, relevant? Is it still a tool with any power as this new class structure, this new work structure is developing? I'm going to try to... Yeah. Uh, well, the sum, summing up of the question was, uh, are unions still relevant in this new class structure in which people don't have these same permanent long-term relationships with employers? Um, and so what I would say is that we need new kinds of unions, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things um, potent places for organizing is freelancer unions. The, there is a big freelancers union. Other kinds of employee associations that bring together people who work for um, multiple, uh, who may work for multiple employers. So we've seen in New York some organizing, for example, um, in the service sector for, I believe, for healthcare workers, right, who go from uh, patron, who don't work in one place like a hospital, but go and serve um, a variety of different home, home healthcare workers. That would be a model. Um, we've seen freelance writers um, organize into unions and, and so forth. So we have to change the notion, uh, the ideas that we have about what unions are and how they work, but that also may require changing some laws. Um, but it also requires changing union culture. For example, I know one idea that some unions have talked about is having some way that you can 
uh, if you no longer work at the workplace or you retire from a job where there was a union, you no longer remember that union. While some unions have explored ideas about allowing people to have some kind of other associated membership with the union, even if you're not technically working at that workplace that has that you know that has a job in that that they've organized. So we need some different ideas about what unions can do. I'm also going to allow Deb to handle that question. But. I I think unions are very relevant to, uh, today, and I think that uh, unions have done very good work in the arts and in music to embrace the term that Ellen was talking about from Guy Standing, proficients, without even knowing that that term uh, yeah. came into being a few years ago. And the, the musicians that Kathy talked about, the mm -hmm. stage hands, the equity, equity at the actors. Um, I have one of my best friends has a son in New York who's a lighting uh, designer. And, and these are these wonderful craft unions understand that the most important thing is your craft and you're going from job to job and you're going from workplace to workplace. But what the union has provided is an undergirding of, of wages and working conditions and, I, and so that you can build a life. Mm -hmm. so that you can support a family, so that you can be proud of your profession, your identity. So I think that's the good kind of proficient, unlike the friend of ours who lost his job for a company and now works for the company as a contract laborer without mm -hmm. any decent rights or the benefit of union membership or anything, but mm -hmm. just basically on call. Although I would also say, I'm just going to do this really quickly, we do need to think beyond unions and think about other kinds of ways um, in which, because um, at least as in this book that I mentioned, The Precariat, by um, Guy Standing in his later book, The Precariat Charter, he argues that we also need to think about some other kinds of ways that aren't based on our workplace identity, some other ways of organizing ourselves and some other kinds of things. Um, he's a big um, advocate for the idea of a basic income, uh, the basic income guarantee, uh, which even goes back to Milton Friedman, who is the arch conservative economist of the 1980s, even favored this. George McGovern famously advocated it when he ran in 1972. It's the idea of government providing some kind of minimal living standard, minimal income guarantee to everyone so that no one has to fall below subsistence levels. And then our incentive or motivation to work would be for to go beyond that minimum kind of a level. Um, obviously, you'd have to have a different tax structure than we have now in order to fund that. But uh, he, he argues that we need to think about some of those kind of creative different kinds of solutions, too. I just want to bring oh, up. We'll never get off this. Question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, just, I just want to bring up one quick thing. Well, it's two, but it, within. Um, the, the trade unions, like musicians, you can belong to the um, union and not have a job. Right. And um, as long as you make, I think, $1,500 a year for five years straight, you can collect a pension from the union. The pension comes through the musician's union. That's at least how it works at the um, local 802. Um, unlike, an industrial union, where is where you lose your job it, when you lose your position. Um, 
when I was a graduate student, I was also the president of our graduate employee union um, up at UMass. And uh, we had the UA, we were UAW, we were auto workers. Um, but they came in and said, you have to change your bylaws because we allowed an associate membership because, you know, graduate students, you know, they'll take off for six months or you're not working in the summer or whatever. And they didn't, they couldn't understand that. Oh they, you know, and we're like, you, you got to be kidding. Because it, you can't run for office if you have a break in service. You know, so it makes a difference especially to those who are, yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if you all have any thoughts on how any of what we've been discussing would apply to visual artists? Because I just feel as though you know, musicians and artists share certain concerns right. as far as the market that is out there, the opportunities for actually earning a living, doing the actual activity of making your work. Right. Very different. They deal with very different challenges. Mm -hmm. I was going to bring up an example of where they might meet, which is um, I'm a visual artist, but I know a lot of people who are in SAG. Mm -hmm. And um, recently, in my practice, I've been having a number of corporate business people coming to me and asking me to do, I don't know, appear in a video or to do workshops of various kinds for my visual arts. And, and um, they're approaching me saying this will be great exposure for you. And I'm going to my friends in SAG and saying, how much do you get paid to appear in a video? And if it's a video that's a promotional video and it's going to be online, what residuals do you get? And so this is like super important information mm -hmm. to have. Then I'm going back to the company and saying, um, if this is an advertisement, I need residuals. And they're like, what? <laughs> We've never had an artist ask for residuals. Mm -hmm. But we thought we could take advantage of you, and, and no, now but, you're, you know, that's right, it's you're great educated on it, and you, right? they didn't expect that. Or if they want to buy an artwork from me, and then um, when you dig a little deeper, they want to reproduce the artwork and put it in an ad. Mm. You know, so I go back to my SAG friends, and I say, so if you were doing still photography or, or whatever, you know, what residual would you get for that? So there are some commonalities. I mean, maybe my case is a little mm -hmm. weird, but there are, there are, um, there are pay structures that exist that we would be good to know about when we're interacting with the business community and taking our own practice into the wider world. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if there's any way that artists can be part of something like SAG or find out more. And I think the group next week is going to talk about some of these issues that um, you talked about in terms of people setting, right, setting fair remuneration. Oh, I guess, I, first of all, I think the cooperative idea is a model that you can have cooperative art galleries and so forth. Though there are models that exist in which our visual artists can also take control of the how their work is disseminated through other kinds of forms. And so I think the cooperative form is, is important. And I wish that one of us had more information about an example in the visual arts. We don't, but we did think that it, it would be relevant. And then um, to me, I, I guess, one of the thing, points that I wanted to make is the kind of piecing together of work for in different places that uh, people in the visual arts have to do, this idea that this is becoming the dominant mode in the economy, right? That 
often artists, unless you have a job at a college or university or school or something like that, you often don't have a steady wage and a, a steady salary and a steady paycheck. You're moving from position to position. And so in a sense, one of the things I want to communicate is that this is becoming more and more a dominant mode of how labor is organized in the United States. Yeah, all kinds, people in all different kinds of jobs now that are, are working those kinds of jobs. Uh, as a visual artist, I'm part of a cooperative uh, studio. We've been together for 30 years in Long Island City. People have come and gone, but we've shared the rent on the floor for 30, 30 years, since 70. But also, I'm a teaching artist, and I find that as a teaching artist, I have no bargaining power I'm a teaching artist. And you have no bargaining power for what? With my organization, or what the artists do not. We're just told what we're going to get, and it's, it's not transparent, the mm -hmm. uh, um, salary structure. It's very, um, I don't know. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about how your cooperative works? Um, well, we just rented. Um, beginning with the first artists who had studios at PS1. Um, PS1, I think, had a structure where after two years, the artists could not stay and they brought other artists in before it was MoMA. Mm -hmm. So some of the artists from, this was Long Island City before it was a real estate thing. It was just an you know, industrial area. Um, found this space. I wasn't with that. I came in right at that point, but I had and we rented a floor in the Midman Furniture Factory in Long Island City. And we took a member of just make a can I just make a make a follow-up comment about your experience of the lack of pay transparency um, in your teaching work there is far too much uh, little pay transparency in the United States there, there's far too much that's hidden from workers from each other and I want to give a plug here for two bills in the United States Congress that are going nowhere. Um, you're not surprised. One is the Paycheck Fairness Act, and the other is called the Fair Pay Act. And in both of these bills, it, there is a call for pay transparency in workplaces across America. And there is a clause that says that workers cannot be penalized for are fired for sharing their pay with one another. And there has been very good work by feminist economists on this very issue that with 
with more pay transparency in organizations, wage differentials and salary differentials between all kinds of workers narrow considerably. So enough of this hiding stuff, hiding behind your paycheck. We all got to get out there, like in the public sector, and have pay just advertised so that employers have a responsibility to treat people more equitably. Right, that was Lily Ledbetter's problem, but it was not addressed in the Lily Ledbetter Act. So um, that what they did in the Lily Ledbetter Act uh, was extend the timeline that she could with, uh, that she could fire. They basically said each time that she, she had that she could sue. I'm sorry. Um, they said that each time they issued a paycheck that was less than her co her male co-worker worker, it was a new instance of discrimination under the Lilly Ledbetter Act. Um, but what it didn't do was deal with the fact that she had worked for so long for the same employer without knowing that people that had come in later and that she had trained were earning less money than she was. Male workers. More, male more workers. Money more money. Earning more. I'm having trouble. Yeah, you're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the front row. Um, there's a lot of intersections here, and I want to go back to a discussion about the visual arts. <laughs> and. Um, Recently, there was um, some there were some laws changed because artists up until now, no matter whether or not you were a working artist, if you didn't sell a certain amount, you mm -hmm. couldn't deduct your expenses because it was considered a hobby. Mm -hmm. And also, there's there's some movement. Jerry Nadler has been working on some copyright laws. Oh, interesting. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the to the plight of the visual artist, which I think is different than the musician, because the musician the musician on Broadway they're creating a product, so to speak, that people want to go to see. Whereas an artist creating artwork, it's in a different kind of framework. Mm -hmm. So maybe you guys could talk about that. Um, I'm not exactly. Sure. I'm not. I don't know that I have exactly the expertise that you want to. You know, just just in general, mm -hmm. because there's I think. Some things that you brought up repeat themselves, like artists of color, women artists, mm -hmm. this opportunity to show. Right. There, there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that women um, in cur curatorial positions are paid less than men. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like you think women have all this power now in the art world, but they really don't. Right. Right. So, why should they? They don't have it anywhere else. Oh, and it's very, well, yeah, and yeah. It, it is very common even in fields not, or areas that are perceived as female um, dominated that men often rise to the position of power um, and and so I think that's true in the visual arts it's true um, certainly in nursing it's true in librarianship it's true in many uh, fields that we identify as being relatively feminized and yet when it comes to handling budgets positions of power hiring um, supervising workers, often men uh, rise into those positions. So if that's one of the issues that you wanted to talk about, yes, that's true. That's what studies have shown. Can I, can I say something? I'm not an artist, but I am a writer. Mm -hmm. And here's something that I'm having a difficult time wrapping my brain around, and I apologize uh, if it just seems way out there. Um, when you sell a work of art, you're transferring ownership to somebody else. 
So there's no opportunity for you to get residuals the way that art is used in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's not true when I write something. When you are a writer or you are an actor, you get, you get residuals or you Royalty. produce a CD, right. you get royalties. Yeah. So I'm having a difficult time dealing with this whole private art market. I'm sorry, but when you sell a piece of art that becomes some wealthy person's private property and then they, they get to determine for the whole future life of that mm -hmm. piece of art where it is shown, where it is reproduced, under what conditions, where it is sold right. again, right. I'm sorry, but as a writer, I, I also feel like I'm an artist in some way. I, I just, I can't wrap my head so, around yeah, that. Yeah, so that has to do with this whole idea of commodification. And we do live in a world where everything is becoming a commodity. And part of what somebody talked about was the idea of um, how even companies now have short-term time horizons and don't think about the long-term reproduction of you know the company. Well, part of that has to do with the fact that companies themselves have become things that are bought and sold rather than something that some entrepreneur starts. So this process of commodification of art is, is a very interesting question. I know you're dying to get in, but yeah. what Deb was saying was reminding me of a conversation that we've had. Um, it might be interesting to hear some of your perspectives on this. Uh, there was a big debate. We live near Philadelphia. And there was a big debate over the Barnes Foundation, right? Uh -huh. uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. but. Um, and I found myself in, in some ways very torn about the two sides of the debate. Of course, the interest who wanted to take, Barnes himself was a wonderful, somebody who had a wonderful vision about involving working class people in appreciation of the arts. He was trying to make art something that was available to the public and not just elites. And so um, the idea that you know, some moneyed interests wanted to move this art collection into Philadelphia in order to promote tourism is something that seemed pretty horrific. On the other hand, if you stop and think about it, the, what people were arguing was that since he owned the art, he and his will had specified that in perpetuity the art had to be shown in a specific way. I had a lot of problems with that too because why does one person who happened to maintain ownership over these pieces of art then get to determine for in perpetuity how that art is shown and what it is positioned next to because of his vision, which he got as an owner. Right? It came because the art was a commodity that he happened to own. So I actually found that the whole Barnes debate was kind of troubling on both sides um, because it was in the context of thinking of art simply as a commodity that certain people could either, he could either uh, determine to use in a particular way because he owned it, or larger interests could use as a tourist, you know, to attract tourists to Center City, Philadelphia. Okay, I have a, I think it's no different than any other capitalist or other environment. <laughs> I knew you would Okay, because once, um, you know, if I'm producing a can of soda, right, once I produce it, somebody else takes it, I don't get the residuals or royalties from it or and anything else, and I don't get control over any profits or anything else. So, it, you know, you're selling a piece of art, it's just like 
it's gone. It's gone from you, you know? I mean, and somebody else gets to use the profits from it or whatever. It goes to Christie's maybe when you die or, you know, um, you know, because it becomes more valuable when you're dead, right? And it blows my mind. Um, but anyway, um, so, I mean, we produce things. I produce a class. It's done. It's gone. It's over. I don't get anything back from it except for the wage that I earned producing it. And so you got a wage for producing this painting, and now it's gone from you. So there should, I think there needs to be another way of looking at things and, and saying, you know, maybe, you, sh you know, there should be a different way of handling Yeah, she's, so she's going back to early, sorry. What? But that's a different category. It's, it's like the difference between the lady back there who's a teacher and who's also creating artwork. Right. So it's, it's, it's different categories. That we but what makes it different? I mean, what makes it I think it art different? is different. When yeah. I, well, if I can interrupt for a second. Yeah. Um, when you say that you produce that can, mm -hmm. are you the, did you invent the idea and the design for this can? Are you the, you know, the, the you know, mother of That's very good. That's a good point. I think I think it. art is in part intellectual property. property I do. Yes. Well, you keep the copyright even if you sell the object. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So I'm going to go back to early Marx in the economic and philosophical manuscripts and his concept of alienation. Mm. I mean, I do see a distinction, but he says, partly he d does build on that notion because he says what differentiates the um, worst of architects from the best of bees is that the architect envisions what they're going to create before they create it. So that makes it very important, that is an, in his mind an important distinction and part of what makes us human is that we have the consciousness to think about what we're creating before we create it. However, Marx would also say that one of the tragedies of modern manufacturing is that when we make other things that aren't art, we don't get to do that. We don't have control. We simply make something that we have no control over and it gets taken away from us. Right. And that's the process of alien, since making things is what makes us human, it's the separating of ourselves from what we create that is the process of alienation. That he, th that in his early work, um, before he got to the surplus stuff, mm. um, that's the stuff I like, the early stuff. Um, it is that separating the creator from their creation, in right. his mind, that is the fundamental problem with capitalism because you create something and it gets taken away and you have no control over it anymore. Um, connected to what you've just said, actually, I recently, yesterday I was reading this article and it was about auction houses and it was about these, like, just obscene amounts of millions and millions and millions of dollars for these works of art, for one work of art right. and then another work of art, that basic, again, it goes back to the 1%. Mm -hmm. Who is actually selling this art and getting all of that money? Mm -hmm. It is the, um, the buyers, you know, the people who are at the top mm -hmm. having their own, their own worlds up there creating more value for their collections and less value for living, working artists and how much they're going to 
all of the living work yeah. the artist will receive. Mm -hmm. But once that's again, when the artist dies, perhaps it's not as much about the many reasons why, like for instance, that artist won't be producing any more work. I mean, that's connected to um, how valued their collection is going to be because then there's a limited mm -hmm. number of works. For mm -hmm. them. So right. it's not so much about um, other factors as this capitalistic system that is feeding itself all the time. Mm -hmm. itself. So I had a question earlier which connects to this, which is what kind of, I'm curious about different kinds of economic systems, maybe they're just, um, you know, you know, designed in and haven't been implemented, yeah. or or maybe economic systems that have been tried out in smaller, you know, communities that maybe the three of you can suggest. You uh, you start that with might that. Work for a creative capital, so you know, a creative. System. Right, 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 right. Well, um, you know, I was just like somebody created this, like cells of water. I don't know you know, thought about putting carbon dioxide. And if you work for a firm, right? If you work for a firm and you create something while you're working for the firm, it's theirs, right? It's theirs, it's not yours. My friend's mother invented Rice Krispie Treats. And she gets what from it? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe bonus. Uh, Maybe. You know, so, um, you know, so there's probably, you know, but um, Mondragon is the biggest example. Do you know about Mondragon? Mondragon is an area in Spain that is a, a working cooperative. They're having some issues and changes now, but it, they have their own university. They're, it's a you know it's built on the whole idea of cooperation and uh, collective appropriation, and it's getting bigger and bigger. And they've even um, come to the states in Evergreen, right, in uh, Ohio, and uh, the steel workers are now involved in it. So um, we're talking about um, at John Jay, which is not just for cops, we have artists, um, and we have economists, um, but um, we have good artists, actually. Um, it, uh, I forgot where I was going, I'm sorry. Um, Mondragon. Mondragon. Oh, uh, we're talking okay. about having a master's degree in economics, which would be more in um, um, local, either community economic development, which artists would have a big part of whatever art you're doing, um, or even international economic development, which would not include things like microfinancing and um, mm. these kind of ways that they're, the World Bank and the WTO and all these other institutions have usurped um, and uh, puts people in really bad positions. But, you know, um, the art world, it's very interesting because my, uh, my mother is an artist. She's a painter. Um, and... Uh, every painting in my house is done by my mother because if I buy a painting, I'd get killed. Um, so, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, Support I'm, other artists. Well, she's very eclectic, so, you know, she's got a little bit of, um, but she never, I think she sold a couple when we were young, you know, but hasn't, you know, it's, hasn't sold them, you know, or, you know, it's just, she's not, 
she wasn't living on it. She worked for the telephone company. She had to have a day job, as do musicians, you know, as do most artists. They mm -hmm. have to have a day job, and many of them are teaching or whatever. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot alike, and then there's a lot that are different. And I can, and that whole idea of reproducing and having that, I know we had to get special permission to use a Diego Rivera print um, for a poster. They but let us have it what, for one of our conferences. That would be from the DIA probably though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you all before you oh, leave tonight. Okay. How about the per woman who yeah. hasn't spoken yet? Hi. Um, I'm just looking at this handout that was given yeah. when we entered. Oh, I didn't get that. What was this for? Oh, that's my fault. Um, I guess. I w w Kevin suggested um, handouts, and okay. So the U.S. Department of Labor has something called ONET. And ONET, I don't even have a copy with me, I don't think. Um, ONET gives you financial information about different jobs. Um, and the, sure, yeah, Deb knows more about um, ONET than that. I use ONET in my classes. ONET is one of my top 10 favorite websites on the planet. <laughs> ONET is, a, is, is, a, is the US Department of Labor, Bureau of Labor Statistics, culling so much information from employers and from employees and from studies that they do about jobs. And uh, they go, they have profiles of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of occupations in the United States. And included in there are 10 year out projections of where the jobs are going to be and how these occupations are growing. And they also have national data on salaries by level, you can see here 10%, 20%, and then the top 10%, and the median right in the middle. And they also have links to every state in the United States to, to get an example of what the local labor market is doing for these various jobs, and it's super fantastic. But you can see here that um, in this particular example, fine artists are not paid all that well when you think about median income in the United States. Yeah, uh, my question is this. I did a calculation. The pay is based upon 52 weeks a year and 40 hours per week. As feminist geographers, do you use that assumption of Wait, hour work, work week in your study? No. Did it say that? No, I did the calculation. Oh, I see. Got it. I wanted to know how they calculated, how they calculated out the wage. Yeah. So what they did for annual is assumed full-time work. Right. right. And that's obviously ridiculous. So in your own research, what is, what is the work week for you based on hourly rate? We, we try to look at, at re, um, when we do wage, research on wages, we actually do try to look at the actual hours that people work, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sorry about that. I didn't, okay. yeah. Because I think that, you know, with the assumption that work week is 40 hours yeah. full-time, that is unrealistic. Well, obviously, yeah, and it's sort of, it's ironic that I put it in the packet when that was the whole point of, half the point, at least, of my presentation was. Because it shows the skewed numbers that other people 
people are working. Right. right. And yeah. We look at it and we're like, sure, yeah, you can make fifty dollars an hour, but I guarantee you, you're only working three hours a week and nine right. hours out of the year. Right. Right. So you're probably still, when you divide it all out across the entire year, making five dollars. And to be honest, I looked at the hour. I was focused on the hourly, and I didn't even notice the yearly. It's useful, though. Mm -hmm. It's useful. No, but I think you're right, because that is, in fact, it, it does show the kinds of assumptions are made. Yeah. But it, but it well, does. Well, that's if you're in the top 10%. It does assume that the problem with this is that it does assume full-time year-round work which is 40 hours times 52 weeks, which is 2,080 hours a year. So that would assume that you have access to paid vacations in America, which a lot of workers do not. It would assume you have access to paid sick days in America. And there is a movement now to have the right to paid sick days in America, and a lot of workers don't have paid sick days. So it assumes that every day you're yeah. is paid. Yeah. In New York now, we have yeah. Oh. But it's got to be over a certain amount of employee, you know, employees. And it's something like 80 hours a year. You have to you have just yeah, for the city you number of hours first, and then you're eligible. Yeah, but it's the employer has to be big enough too. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go back to the question that you raised about the auctions. And like that's very extreme. So I mean, you see that the art is now, as you said, mm -hmm. commodified, and it's it's like a it's like a chip in, in wealthy people's hands and mm -hmm. whatever. But is the bottom line that at 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 the, at the base of all these problems, whether it's visual art or writing, is it is it is the problem the fact that art itself, unless it's at a certain area where it's been changed into a money issue or a money something that's tangible? Is that art isn't valued? Do you see what I'm yeah, I do. I'm in the process of creating art is not valued. It's not. Um, I think. I think one of the common themes that we're ha that we're talking about is first of all just the trend towards commodification of life as being a you know a fundamental problem in the direction that our economy and our society is going, is that more and more human experience is becoming commodified. Um, and then the second piece of it, and that's where the feminism comes in, is that we then, in a world in which we value things for what they earn, for what they earn in a market, um, we don't value things that aren't, don't earn well in a market, and we tend to devalue things that are associated with feminine qualities, not necessarily just things that women do um, or jobs that women have, but things that are associated as being feminized. So the quote that Deb uh, raised, there's this kind of cultural assumption, well, economics, that's hard and scientific and it involves numbers, therefore it's a male represented by a male. Art is something that is represented by a female because it's about beauty and it's you know unpredictable and erotic and mysterious and that's what women are like. So we have the, the gendering of these assumptions in this. You have a kind of a coming together of um, a world in which what is commodified is valued and a world in what it, in which what is masculine is valued. And both of those work together to the detriment, detriment of people in the arts. 
You know, like what's the first thing that gets cut out of any school system? Mm -hmm. You know, music and art, bang, bye. And they, they're pushing the STEM. If I hear STEM again, I might, you know. Um, STEAM too. STEAM now? Yes, STEAM is great. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It hasn't moved into that much popular culture yet, though, STEAM. I haven't heard it yet. Not, not enough yet. A friend of mine who's an artist told me about it, but. <laughs> it yeah. does seem, though, that it's a cultural, um, you know, lack of value for mm -hmm. the arts, and mm -hmm. then that translates into support from the state, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's connected, and then it, it kind of infiltrates everything, yeah. so. And yet the irony is, in the literature, uh, looking at the economics literature on the arts to come here, the one time that you see a real valuation of what artists do is when we're talking about local economic redevelopment, as Deb mentioned. You know, oh, let's bring the artists in, and then they will make it attractive for young people and Greenwich entrepreneurs, Village. and then they'll get priced out of the market and have to move somewhere else, and Greenwich Village, and Soho, and Tribeca, and everywhere else in the Hell's city, right? Right, exactly. So there's, there's the one time um, art becomes valuable is when it helps in the commodification process of real estate and or other things. Gentrification. Gentrification. Yeah. A possibility for artists to know that power and to put a value on that and right. ask for that. That's true. So, you know, when people say, we'll give you this space for free because it'll be great exposure for you, you say, actually, why don't you pay me to be in that space, mm -hmm. in that shop front? Because my art is valuable for you. Yeah, and I'm learning to do that. So yeah. there's opportunities there to just ask. I have a little story related to what you were just saying. Um, I moved here from Miami recently, mm -hmm. and we're all probably familiar with Art Basel. Um, there's a certain section of Miami called Wynwood, which is um, the kind of the gentrified uh, neighborhood that's now the art, mm -hmm. the art centers there, and um, very quickly gentrified. And the walls, the Wynwood walls, right, all of these different um, industrial spaces in this area uh, started Tony Goldman, this, uh, who, is, who passed away, but he had claimed to uh, be the one who gentrified Soho, mm. and then Miami Beach, and then went to Detroit. He did some talking there about, you know, changing around through the creative capital. So um, anyway, he started this whole thing about having artists paint these different murals mm -hmm. in Wynwood. And he was bringing over a lot of very um, well-known uh, artists, and he was paying them. And then, fast forward to now, um, artists not only aren't getting paid for the majority of these walls, but they have to pay. They actually have to pay if they want to like the have some of that have to pay. You know, real estate mm -hmm. and some of that exposure opportunity. Wow. And then for only a certain length of time before that wall is sold to mm -hmm. another artist to get that kind of exposure. Wow. Dancers do that too. They have to pay to get strip, mostly strippers, but they have to pay to, 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 strip. to strip, you I know? Think, yeah, it goes yeah, it's through like, 
through so a lot of different yeah. They have a route to some serious money there. Yeah. <laughs> some of them do, but the cooperatives. My parting rhetor rhetorical question was going to be, what if we restructured the whole way in which art was sold since we are in a capitalist economy? Uh, what if it was up to the artist when their work would be sold or when and for how long their production would be rented? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we went to a rental model instead of a sale model. There are resale agreements There's mm. in California and in Europe hmm. that guarantee some resale rights to the artists. It's not a very big percentage, but it does exist. They still have to eat. Mm -hmm. well, but as, as a Marxist, when, when artists were pulled into the system, whether it was in China or in Russia, they ended up getting subsidized, but they had to do the kind of work that the state wanted. So. Well, that, I'm not that kind of Marxist. We're not going to defend the state. I'm asking about that. And even you see I don't, I'm not a state. OK, but even when, in terms of how things have gone in the United States, the funding for the arts has gone down, and then it, then we had all the whole Jesse Helms thing and the NEA mm. and you know all that stuff because the average person wants to know why their tax dollars is going for something that maybe they don't understand or don't like. Right. The WPA was a very wonderful thing. It was. And it Obama was. Obama promised that. Yes. Uh huh. Right. No, Obama's promise on a lot of things. So. Um, Kind of revisiting the question I asked earlier in a new okay. way, would, I'm just curious about the three of your opinions as far as um, would, do you think that artists and even workers in the United States in particular should work within the system or try to create their, a new economy, a new kind of system that will work better and serve the people more? Well, I'm going to... Well, we, we know, well, you we know, know how I feel. <laughs> I mean, I want the system gone. Yeah. yeah. I'm for short-run improvements while having a long-run vision. And I do think that creating cooperatives and creating alternative institutions within the system we have now is useful and productive. And I exactly. think that that is, it is very important, you know, to maintain our vision. I mean, to be honest, right now, if we had some kind of major institutional change in the United States, I don't think it would be anywhere near in the direction that any of us in this room would want. Yeah. Right, so, so I, I, I would not, I'm not gonna tell anybody to go to the barricades because I don't think what I would like what would come after oh, right no. now. So I'm more for small scale institutional changes. Right. The idea of cooperatives I think is very important um, and creating other kinds of um, new institutions that we can use to try to transform, to, in, a sense, in a sense, to shield ourselves from the commodification process. I mean, that's in a sense what happened during what economists refer to as the quote unquote golden age. It wasn't a golden age for everyone, but it was that period from the New Deal through the 1960s in which there was a kinder, gentler form of market economy. There was more state, more of a social safety net, stronger unions, um, a lot of different kinds of institutional forms that within the United States and industrialized countries that made us less susceptible to the ups and downs of a market economy or capitalism or whatever term we want to use. Um, and we've lost those in the last 20, 30 years. 
And so we need to find new ways to build them back, but they can't look exactly like the ones we had before. The ones we had before, as that golden age was predicated on Keynesianism, that is a very consumeristic kind of philosophy. It went along with a male breadwinner, female householder model of the family that I don't particularly want to go back to, and a number of other things, and US domination of the world economy, US military domination of, of the world system that I don't want to go back to well, to extent. Good point. Right, good point. So, finally, I'll, finally, I will finish up very simply good. in this fashion. So, I'm living inside a box, but I'm a person that thinks outside of the box. So, I'm going to employ all of my skills and talents and creativity to think outside the box, to change the box in such a way so that in the long run, it may not even look like a box. Thank you.